Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Aquademia Podcast. I'm Sean O'Loughlin, and it's just me today for this episode. We have returning champion Holly Froelich on to give us an update on what's going on in the world of global climate change and how that relates to seafood here in 2022. But before we get into that, as I always do, I want to remind you to please subscribe to Aquademia wherever you listen to podcasts so you can get every new episode directly downloaded onto your device as soon as it's available. Remember to rate and review the show on whichever platform you listen to us on. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can find us on Twitter. We are at AquademiaPod, or you can use the contact form at globalseafood.org slash podcast. So without any further ado, let's get right into this conversation that I had with Holly, and I will talk to you at the end. Thanks, everyone. Welcome to the Aquademia Podcast. Our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways. I mean, we desperately need to eat more seafood. This is a pioneering industry with a whole lot of people who have really good ideas and a lot of experience and are unafraid. Aquademia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all things seafood. All right, we have returning champion, Dr. Holly Frolic, Frolic back on. Oh, Frolic. <laughs> Has anyone ever called you that? Holly Frolic? Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, I mean, it's apropos. Frolic or Frolic in German means happy. So, I mean, it's it's real close go. to yeah. Frolicking, you know. Of all the times I've said your name in like since we've known each other. Yeah. The one time I'm being re- recorded is when I say it wrong. Holly Frolic is uh, back. And if you don't know who she is, uh, go back to the beginning of the podcast. We Our first few episodes, you'll hear her voice. Holly has been on to talk about both her career pathway before, but also um, her involvement and expertise with climate change and its relation to food systems, particularly seafood. And so we thought climate change is not something that we've really talked about for a little while. And so we said, hey, maybe we should have Holly come back on because people love to hear her voice and have her give us kind of an update on like what has changed over the last two years, two-ish, two and a half years. What's new? What's the main focus? What are some of the issues that have come up? And just kind of give us an update on what's going on. So we didn't really make much of a structure for this <laughs> episode. So I'm going to kind of hand it off to Holly. And like I-, I told her just to give us an update and let us know what's going on, uh, what's new in the world of global climate change. I think, I feel like climate change has kind of been, uh, I don't want to say covered up, overshadowed, I guess, mm. when COVID came. Mm. Uh, because it obviously became the biggest, the the primary issue uh, and, yeah. and main focus for everybody. So, like I said, we haven't heard about it in a while. So, what is going on in the world of Holly and in the world of climate change? Yeah, and and those two things intersecting um, quite a bit these days. Uh, yeah. So, I think first off, thanks for having me, um, and I think your timing couldn't be better because there's tons of research that's about to come out um, in oh, relationship nice. to to food and seafood in particular um, in various sections of both the upcoming IPCC report that's coming out. I was one of the contributing authors on that report. And those are that's kind of the, the big entity where a whole bunch of international scientists kind of donate their time to collect and synthesize all the information that we know about various aspects, whether that's the modeling of the actual kind of climate dynamics to the things on repercussions for food and people and systems. Um, I obviously was on that latter half of that contribution. And so that's coming out in a few weeks um, to highlight some things around um, global climate change impacts. And my specific contribution was, was around North America. Um, so as is well. it 
is that that's one report that's coming out or kind of like a series? Yeah. So the inter intergovernmental panel on climate change is kind of a series. So it, it has several forms that come out. I was part of mm-hmm. working group two uh, because it is just such a massive topic and there's so many different dimensions. They have to split it up, um, but it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages on the most up to date understanding that we have in the scientific community of what's going on with climate change. Um, and and when so is that coming out? Uh, that's coming out uh, February 28th, I believe. Oh, um, so yeah, yeah, right around the corner. Right around the corner. Yeah. And it was years and years in the making. I was part of it for about two years. Um, but I think the kind of really heavy lead authors and all of them, you know, they start prepping and doing things uh, four or five years in advance. So it takes a really long time and then they start doing it again. But, um, and on top of that, the United States is um, ramping up for their fifth national climate assessment. So I'll be participating in that as well um, with a whole bunch of US colleagues looking at impacts of climate change. Um, I'll be focusing on the Southwest so California um, and other reaches in that area. That's where you are, right? Yeah, that's where yeah. I'm at. So, so have direct um, linkage to and and very cuts deep in studying those dimensions um, <laughs> and providing providing information on that as well. So, a lot of connections, a lot of stuff happening that's coming out. Happy to highlight that today. Yeah, for sure. Nice to see uh, the U.S. government doing something again with climate. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's that, that, nice. that's a little relieving for all of us in the science community. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to to once again have it um, be at least taken seriously to to some extent. Um, obviously, we can provide uh, continual evidence um, and organization to that information, but it's really up to policymakers to mm. making those recommendations actually matter um, yeah. and have that action take take hold. So. For sure. So before we get into some of those updates and yeah. some of the findings that uh, that we'll, we can expect, what's going on with you? You know, we, we haven't talked to you in over two years. I think yeah. we, I think last time we talked to you, I think it was like right at the beginning of the pandemic, right? Where we all started it working was. from home. Uh, yeah. I was still in like a little closet lined with moving blankets before I actually built my home office. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was a while ago. Um, yeah. What's going on with you? Yeah, I mean... Uh, surviving like I think most people just trying to do the best I can of being a, a professor I, I started my professorial job basically right around the time COVID hit um, I had about six months of, of in-person anything um, at my job I have yet to teach in person um, oh, that's, <laughs> so so it's been a bit odd um, and stressful and um, but overall surviving and um, I'm I'm expecting a new small frailic coming into our lives so um, I'm looking forward to that which gives me I'm doubling down on the the climate change research because now it's you know my my daughter who is coming um, in May mm-hmm. you know this what happens in the future is is going to be really impactful to her life um, so now there's even kind of more urgency for the kind of work that I do and um, outreach and and work that I do with policymakers. Yeah, and congratulations on that. By the ah, way. thanks, Sean. I, I, know, I, I said it to you off air, but I wanted to make sure that uh, we, you know, officially congratulated you from the Aquademy podcast. So that's very Thank exciting. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, I did know about it because I, you know, I'm I, I'm connected with you on all the social media. So I was very mm-hmm. excited, but uh, wanted to make sure that I, that you were comfortable talking about it before. I brought oh, it yeah. Up, so. <laughs> very, very excited. Yeah, we're we're about six months along. So it's, 
you know, balancing that with, um, you know, focus and, and research mm-hmm. uh, in the climate change realm and all of that, along with COVID-19 and, and navigating <laughs> this weird, weird, it's a weird space time. that we're in. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a it's really weird time. Pretty surreal. Um, but I feel, yeah, feel pretty lucky. Uh, my core family is healthy and, and all of that. So I've been really yeah. fortunate. And like you said, yeah. it gives you kind of a new perspective. Oh, on yeah. the work that you're doing, right? And and I think I think people still think they have this mindset when they think of the impacts of climate change of it. Like people say affecting our future generations, they mm-hmm. may be thinking they're like great, 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 great grandkids, but that's <laughs> not the case. Uh, it's a little nope. more immediate than that. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm sure you have a really interesting perspective on that now as you're as you're getting ready to, like you said, bring another little frolic into this world. Yeah. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about climate change. Let's talk about yeah. what's going on. What, what, are, what are some of the updates? What's something that people may not know that they should be aware of at this point? Yeah, I think one of the, the big ones is that we're seeing the impacts now. I mean, that's becoming mm-hmm. a really high confidence in our understanding across looking um, at all the evidence. And, it, and I can't emphasize that enough. I mean, certainly living in in California, um, we've had kind of one after the other of the huge fire seasons kind of rolling through, um, mm-hmm. really disrupting um, it and feels devastating. Like it's been yeah, it basically has. Yeah, um, up and down the coast, right? And so we have, and and whether that's um, kind of continual uh, intrusion of saltwater sea level rise. Um, Obviously, some continued research on linkages uh, with the the strength and frequency of hurricanes, which is still um, starting to come in focus, right? It's not as um, solid as we have with sea level rise and and linkages to fire. But those things are are happening now. And so we're where our generation is really seeing kind of the the outfalls of that. So in the seafood realm, um, and you brought up COVID, uh, Mm -hmm. through that, we're starting to see if those cracks emerge in real time um, and really back up some of the the predictive evidence that we have across multiple sources. So, you know, if we're looking at, say, wild capture fisheries, we're seeing, again, in real time right now, um, fisheries on the move, uh, changing their location, tracking either those um, thermal gradients that, you know, they're more accustomed to or their prey that they have to follow for yeah. that. Um, and that obviously has uh, trickle down effects to the fisheries themselves of trying to follow that. And then how you govern those systems as the reach and access to those resources change over time. And we're seeing it on the West Coast um, of the United States. We're seeing it on the East Coast. We're seeing it in Europe um, and and everywhere kind of in between. So the evidence to this is just, it's really stacking up now and showing kind of a lot of the, the things that um, Kind of more predictive models, or or things that we suspected based on general trends, um, are are starting to happen now. I'm curious because there were a lot of these stories that came out during COVID that were like these like nature reclaiming type stories. You know what I'm talking oh, about? Oh yeah. You, so I, I, I'm curious, and it, and I'm not asking about if that's actually happening because I mm-hmm. I, I know I know the truth, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm curious from a a public mindset point of view. Have you noticed a shift in people's, and I imagine it would not be in the way that would be preferred, but have you noticed a shift in people's attitudes and mindsets towards global climate change because of COVID? Because maybe they think that, oh, there weren't as many planes for two years. So like things have gotten better mm-hmm. and all this. Like, are you, What have you noticed in that realm? Because I feel like that's that psychological side of things is not 
really something that people talk about. Mm. I don't know yeah. if that makes any sense or if you no, feel... No, it does. I think I think people are like, oh, maybe this this temporary pause um, in... Helped, in, helped a little bit. Right? Helped a little bit. Yeah. yeah. And, and unfortunately, what we know about carbon emissions and, and atmospheric dynamics and how climate change actually operates um, is that a one-year semi-hiatus, because, you know, everything didn't immediately come to um, a stop. There was still right. transport happening. People still exist. Industrials or industrialization is still happening. Right. It wasn't um, the walking dead. We're just everything yeah, stopped. Where everything completely stops. Right. Which, there, you know, that's, that's good. We don't really want that either. No, that is the <laughs> other extreme of which we do not want. Um, yeah. Certainly. Uh, and, but what we know is that, right, this, this train is rolling and some of the mm -hmm. evidence, even before uh, COVID hit, in in kind of the atmospheric science world of them actually trying to predict what the long-term trends would be say for warming uh, or changes in precipitation or sea level rise all those those components connected to to climate change is that we're seeing that it's like i said the ball or the snowball i guess not snowball but the ball <laughs> is already rolling and so the impacts and the carbon that we've already put into the atmosphere is kind of putting us towards that direction. So one year um, really isn't going to do too much. And actually kind of the carbon emissions um, tracking that goes on in real time. Nowadays, what we're finding is um, that that blip, that decline is right back up. Um, yeah, we're right well, back yeah, up to where we were. Um, so it's it adds to that uh, kind of annual variability but it fundamentally doesn't change our trajectory that we're seeing for climate change yeah and that's what i that's what i expected but I, you know i'm just curious if there was a after seeing that one year kind of break mm -hmm. slight relief <laughs> on the environment uh i'm wondering if people kind of just stopped caring um yeah i i almost think it's it it, you know, and this is beyond my, my well, people realm. didn't care in the first place anyway. So. <laughs> yeah, I think it, well, and I think people feel overwhelmed. Uh, I mean, well, yeah. climate grief is real, right? Especially for earlier generations. The, just this morning, I was listening to NPR and they featured some of that research of just the early, the um, kind of younger generations are, well, they're scared um, and already feeling exhausted and overwhelmed. Um, and, and that does have a psychological effect uh, on your ability to kind of take in information and, and, and operate in the world and care about something. Yeah. But I also think kind of that, that COVID dimension of, oh man, COVID, it's heavy. I mean, um, you know, millions of people uh, dying because of this virus that we can't see, but is global. I mean, there's a lot of parallels there um, mm. to what we're seeing actually playing out in the dynamics of COVID and science uh, myths and disinformation, things that are happening right now with COVID are, I mean, that's been happening with climate change for decades, right? right. Um, so yeah. there's actually lots of parallels with how people kind of are, I think, absorbing information, at least based on the research, the psychologists that study this kind of stuff. It, it, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of parallels there, I think. Interesting. Uh, have you seen a, a change in your, your ability to do your research mm. because of COVID? Like, did oh, you just, did you get like a, a lack of resources due to it because there was so much shift in, in, in money and, and other sources? Uh, it definitely, yeah, it upended a lot. Um, yeah. it, we had to pivot quite a bit uh, for some of the active research we were doing. Um, you know, we had these grandiose plans and a lot of my colleagues the same um, of, you know, we're going to do these um, interactive workshops. We're going to collect, go out and collect data. Mm -hmm. We're going to, you know, run some experiment in a lab and 
all of these things. And, and um, yeah, COVID absolutely just Pulled that put a giant, mm-hmm. yeah, a giant halt on it. It didn't stop completely. And I was really fortunate because half of what I do is work with electronic fish, right? I model things, mm-hmm. um, use synthesis science to aggregate information to then inform some of the work that I do. So I could lean a bit more heavily on that side of, of my research, which I was very thankful for of being an interdisciplinary scientist to be able to leverage that dimension. But yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I'm sure. Did, I'm sure not everyone was in that same position oh, as you. So <laughs> I'm no, sure some no. people had a really hard time. I. I I felt for my my basic scientist uh, scientist crews out there that mm. you know really depend on being able to go out and um, get in the field or be in, be in a lab um, where you're in very close proximity to other people. Um, mm. I mean, we saw that play out in both aquaculture and fisheries, right? Of the the processing and um, confined spaces of boats and things like that. All that got disrupted and you know, we saw the same thing kind of transpire uh, on the science side of tracking and trying to study all this stuff inherently gets limited when people can't be next to each other and work with each other on yeah. those things. Yeah. For so sure. Huge how, how did some of those people, uh, how did they pivot? What did they end up doing? Um, well, a lot of them uh, kind of focused on um, research development, uh, grant writing. Mm-hmm. The fun <laughs> um, stuff, the fun um, part, yeah. <laughs> uh, the really monotonous parts. Yeah. Um, yeah and you had uh, teaching too. I'm sure some of them were in the uh, situation yeah. where they could be teaching as well. So Yeah, exactly. Like we're always kind of doing both or, you know, uh, doing service and, and um, teaching and research all simultaneously. You kind of have to be a jack of all trades when you're right. in academia um, yeah. and somehow do it all to perfection at a hundred percent. So somehow well, we of all, of course, that's the expectation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's fine. Everything's yeah. fine. You're uh, fine. <laughs> which goes really well when there's a pandemic rolling through. Yeah. So yeah, it was really and continues to be really hard. And you know, some of the research that's coming out is really showing if the the cracks in in our institutions as well of you know, it disproportionately impacts um, people of color and women um, in in these institutions, right, who mm. are already kind of uh, underrepresented um, in terms yeah, of the supports. Yeah, and people with young children, uh, that that obviously was a huge one um, that largely, yeah, again, impacts women. I felt that one. <laughs> oh, I, yeah. So, um, so it's been, it's, I, I have no doubt that as we move forward and, and people that are kind of keeping track of this is that there will be, there will be holes, there will be gaps and disruptions. Mm. And, and unfortunately, you know, the, the science lost uh, during this time um, is, is probably going to be pretty substantial uh, because it's yeah, impacted and, and, people. And not even just yeah. because of COVID, but also just because of like, like we talked about the, the governmental structure and the, mm-hmm. you know, the kind of um, the, the lack of respect for that research coming from the top. Yeah. I'm sure we'll have contributing, be a contributing factor towards that loss of science too, which is just too bad. So this is a really downer episode. Sorry, guys. <laughs> yeah, I, know. I know. I should talk about some of the hopeful things that we're seeing with climate yeah, change. Yeah, let's, th- well, well, let's get into, let's get into yeah. um, some of the, some of the actual, you know, the, the science that you have been doing and the, and the results that we, that we're starting to see. I want to start off with, you know, cause we, we are seafood podcast. You are here to talk about seafood and climate change most of the time, but <laughs> I want, so I want to look at, um, kind of some of the challenges that the seafood industry was facing regarding climate change beforehand and then some of the challenges that they're facing now and if those have changed or increased or anything like that, if you don't mind. 
Yeah, of course. Um, so, you know, the I think pre or post, say, COVID or um, as a science is emerging on our understanding of uh, climate change impacts, um, you know, the, the seafood sector in terms of um, adaptation, right, and how to adapt uh, more readily and more effectively going from uh, kind of more coping mechanisms of just reactive responses when something bad happens, you you respond. And that's that's pretty much how the seafood industry has been operating at large yeah. and it relatively continues to do so. And, and, and I'll um, say the seafood industry is very good at that. Yes. Like that's right. they they have they have shown to be very innovative when they need to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. So you you can you can respond, but that gets really hard when that those frequencies of disturbance kind of up themselves. Like the frequency yeah. gets bigger, the intensity gets stronger, um, and there's only so much that one system um, can handle or or one dimension of a say a seafood sector, right? Especially for kind of the smaller. Uh, players of small scale fisheries or smaller farms um, mm -hmm. really are put at a disadvantage here in terms of being able to pivot so so quickly. And we and we see this with COVID. So COVID, again, lots of parallels and, and information that we can glean from how, say, the fishing and aquaculture industry responded provides us great insight into kind of what's coming down the path in terms of weaknesses or strengths um, in certain systems. Um, for instance, you know, we found you know, larger producers that are able to divert or change their supply chain really quickly, right? Of, oh, okay, well, we can't um, transport this to China. Uh, what are our other options in terms of distribution, right? Large distributors could do that. Larger production systems could do that. The smaller farms, not so much. They had to look inward, uh, right? And so we saw right. a slight difference. Um, and, and those and smaller farms, for example, uh, you know, they're their supply chains, they, they probably don't even know their supply chain. <laughs> right. Right. It's, like that's the thing. Right. The supply chain transparency is a, is a really big thing for these larger corporations that are, uh, are running yeah. huge operations, but these right. smaller farms, they don't, they don't know where their fish is going. They just know they sell it to this guy and he takes and care it can of it. Go, right. And, and, and if one, and they have fewer options, right. Yeah. To, to potentially pivot, even if they do know. Mm -hmm. um, and so we did see kind of a turn towards uh, more kind of community-based distribution, mm. online access, really uptick um, to those to those strains from COVID that gives us kind of a good, good insight of, you know, this is the type of thing that we could anticipate to see or in preparation for inform a more resilient system mm. of diversifying kind of how you get your product to a different location, um, what access to kind of, um, uh, ice or other kind of cooling processes or processing stations in general. I mean, you name it, we we were able to kind of uh, dig in a little bit. I, I was fortunate enough to work with a whole bunch of really amazing scientists, um, both in the United States and um, internationally on looking at these parallels uh, of COVID and, and kind of thinking about management systems and, and adaptability uh, for climate change. And you do, like you said, the seafood system is uh, really really good um, in many ways at pivoting, but we're able to kind of identify some of those cracks and supply chains were certainly one of them, like most things, oh, <laughs> not yeah. just seafood. Um, but for from the climate change perspective, this really does provide some really great insights. And I hate to use the word great um, in this circumstance, uh, but it gives so us context. Interest, of, of in, interesting insights. <laughs> yeah. Some interesting. Telling, telling insights. Yeah, exactly right. So, so talk about those. Let's let's talk about some of those insights and, and some of the data that, that you were coming out with. 
Yeah, so um, some of the work um, directly related uh, to climate change that I've done, I um, just published a paper and synthesizing as much information as I could about um, uh, aquaculture and climate change impacts and adaptations. And some of the things that are coming out um, is that, well, not surprisingly, uh, most of the focus and, and attention um, kind of revolves around areas um, in Asia where most of the production happens of aquaculture. Yeah. Um, so that's good. I mean, there's good kind of decent coverage on, on where production is happening and, and how we understand it. Um, but we saw kind of disconnects between kind of what is being studied and what we understand in terms of the responses. So in, in regions in Asia, kind of the number one thing that we're seeing in, in real time in terms of threats and what we're expecting in the future for adaptation is related to sea level rise. Like that's number one, flooding, hmm. sea level rise, yep. that changes, is already threatening that, that region and is expected more so. And if we look say in North America, uh, ocean acidification absolutely dominates um, in North no, America. Really. Mm -hmm. And it's and was never mentioned uh, in a place like China, which was really interesting that we have this. Yeah, is, that, is that because of like regular weather systems? Or what do you think that what's your what's your idea on that? So I think part of it is linked to um, the the funding that has been put towards ocean acidification directly in North America. So the U.S. government. So it's not that it's um, not happening. Well, it's that they're not looking at it as much. Potentially, right? Um, or that it's not as big of a threat as uh, sea level rise. So sea level rise right now, they're seeing it in real time, have to really take action of um, coastal armoring, uh, movement of those those areas and, and what it means for that industry um, in low lying areas in particular on coastlines for saltwater intrusion, because we know, you know that can really disrupt uh, the ability to, to grow anything when the saltwater yeah, balance oh, yeah. um, is out of whack. So, um, but one of the kind of other sides of that the more kind of uh, well, what do we do about it um, kind of thing. And from this research, we're seeing that uh, while kind of larger global papers will put forward, you know, well, it's really what the answer is, is, is better breeding and genetics, that, that tends to kind of dominate the global literature. When you look more regionally and locally, it's government it's governance, it's management mm. practices, it's more kind of farm local level applications to improve those conditions to improve adaptation. And so some of the research we're seeing is that there's an inherent disconnect between a, what the what the high level uh, kind of academics and things are, are putting mm -hmm. forward of like technology will save us um, right. <laughs> versus no, actually it's the people that will save us. And it's the governance that really will determine how this plays out. And certainly technology will have a role to play, but perhaps, you know, we, we can't put all our eggs in the technology basket uh, to assume that that adaptation, that form and that pathway will be the end all, especially for uh, poorer regions uh, that may not have access to, to that. Now, do you think that's recognized over there and being implemented? Or is it something that like is more of a theoretical thing like, hey, this would probably work if you did this, if you took these steps? Uh, what do you do? You, do you see any of that happening? Um, not not a lot. Uh, but, no, and this okay. is this is yeah, this is actually something another part of my work, um, both in kind of wild capture and aquaculture, there's kind of little attention given to the planning relative to climate change of when mm. plans are put forward for um, kind of revisioning what uh, the management strategy will be um, for these systems. It's very rare 
that climate change will come into that fold. It's not, it's, it, it doesn't, it can happen. It does happen yeah. in some locations, but it's very rare. Um, and it's exceedingly rare for aquaculture um, to think and, and have it have climate change be part of that planning process, which ultimately kind of has this feedback loop of, well, then it will just be continuous coping mechanisms. It will just be reactive, which mm. again is potentially not the best in terms of right. um, anticipating what's to come. Right. And like we mentioned, they are very good at it, but it's it's like running yeah. on a treadmill kind of, right? Yeah, it's it's. Well, and it's this, you know, is it better uh, to immediately go from zero to, you know, running 20 miles an hour, um, right? You're going to get leg cramps. Uh, mm -hmm. You're going to get winded really fast. You're going to get side stitches. <laughs> like there's repercussions <laughs> to just going uh, and running at 20 miles an hour uh, versus you slowly work it up, right? Mm -hmm. And you build up your tolerance and you build up that those abilities to have um, you know, stronger muscles and uh, greater capacity for breathing. I mean, it's the same thing in, in adapting to this. If we can do it a little earlier, the pains will be a lot worse, right? It will be a lot less expensive. Uh, you'll yeah. be able to weather those shocks a lot easier um, when, when they're coming down the pipeline. If you are considering kind of location or um, uh, monitoring or what the kind of um, access is to funds to, to recover from when it when it does overwhelm you, even if you put strategies into place to weather it, yeah. um, and and again we saw that with with COVID nineteen, a lot of parallels there. Yeah, fantastic analogy. <laughs> so okay, we talked about sea level rise, we talked about ocean acidification, we talked about wildfires, all of the happy things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what about changes in in weather systems? It, more extreme storms, the swinging temperatures during mm -hmm. uh, during different seasons. Has that increased since we last talked to you in the last couple a couple of years ago? Has that, have we seen shifts in kind of the the weather patterns? Because I know from a person sitting on a couch watching the news, <laughs> it feels like it's gotten worse. Sure. Is that because we're spending more time at home sitting on the couch watching the news? Or is that because the weather systems and the, these these events are getting more frequent? What What do you think? Yeah. So what the science is showing is that um, th there hasn't been a dramatic, say, uptick in the last year or so, right? Mm -hmm. But the, the trend is increasing towards um, kind of changes in more intense precipitation events and longer dry periods uh, that occur. And you get these more massive swings, right? And, and that has been starting to precipitate and happen over um, the last couple of decades, right? Not just within right, a year. Yeah. These are long climatic changes um, that are obviously linked to weather, uh, but weather is that variability that bounces around, right, around right. the overall average of that climate um, changing long-term. Um, but the, I, think, I think you nailed something is that A, uh, a lot of people are at home on their phones, uh, on mm -hmm. their computers, kind of absorbing some of this doom scrolling information <laughs> more readily perhaps. Um, we're also, you know, getting better at um, linking these systems together of, of mm -hmm. having more confidence um, in the science um, and continual testing. Even though COVID was happening, as scientists, we're still at it, um, trying to do our best to, to work on it and contribute, even though we're not all immunologists and trying to uh, find the, right. <laughs> the solution and vaccines for, for COVID, we were doing our best to try to con continue to contribute to climate change research. Um, so I would say this, the science continues to get stronger, the evidence gets stronger for those connections as well. And I would say the the, the media 
itself is also becoming a bit more receptive of reporting on these things. Um, I, I, oh, some medias. Some, some medias. <laughs> certainly not all. Certainly not um, all of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but, th- there, but there was um, more coverage of climate-based um, aspects in the media last year than there had been the year before, the year before that, right? So I think there's also an uptick in recognition that, oh, actually, the scientists may be onto something here <laughs> um, yeah. and, and, and reporting on it. So I think it's kind of maybe a mix of, of all of these, these factors to make to really bear down and, and witness um, what's going on. Because when COVID, I think you were right, when COVID wasn't here, you know, we could get caught up more easily in our, in our daily mm-hmm. lives and not necessarily forced to sit in our house and just think in consume. silence to consume <laughs> information for yep. better or worse sometimes. Um, yeah. So, uh, which, you know, is heartening to see when people um, are getting this information or especially younger generations are, are feeling um, kind of inspired to, to take that path of mm. wanting to see change of recognizing that um, there's, there's pretty solid evidence here. And um, even, even, for how young they are, that they see kind of the the importance of that and and what that means for them for their life um, yeah. moving forward. That's, that's amazing to watch because I'm you know I, I I'm in my mid thirties now, so I'm mm-hmm. g- getting to that age where you know I'm starting to see the separation between the <laughs> younger generation <laughs> yeah. and my own generation. And uh, I'm on I'm on the TikTok. I I you know I see got, I don't I, even have that. So see well I got done. I, I went on there. <laughs> I'm on there. Uh, I don't contribute. I'm a I'm a consumer. But um, there's something to be said for algorithms and those kind of things. And they show you they show you what you want to see. So it is definitely biased. But the the amount that I see the the younger generations really be not just being aware, but like caring about it and trying to be more actionable about this climate change in particular. I see a lot of too. And it's it's encouraging to me, which it's, it's nice to see because growing up in our generation we didn't see a lot of that we were it was kind of suppressed and we were almost the people who you know who are our age who kind of like pushed that yeah it, it was like an uphill battle for us so it's it's nice to see the younger generation being kind of flipped which uh, is interesting yeah I mean it's just I, I think reports like IPCC and these international kind of consortiums coming together to really convey that information or message mm-hmm. I mean it's at that point where it's irrefutable. Mm-hmm. Uh, that this is happening uh, and that it is going to have deep and lasting consequences for society and nature. Um, and and to your point, um, you know, a, much of that was suppressed or ignored uh, as we were growing up. And so, you know, we didn't learn about climate change when we were in elementary no. school and high school. Um, you know, it wasn't until I got to college. So, yeah, but, you know, the, the, it's the benefit of them being younger and and choosing to not listen to older people <laughs> you know <laughs> I, I think that's that's been beneficial so that, that's a whole different topic that i'm not qualified to have so Same. i'm you know <laughs> but i just thought that was interesting how how you kind of see a shift in in the generational viewpoint of it um yeah, earlier fun. in this conversation you mentioned positives yeah there's some there good are, news there let's is talk some about some news. of the good things because Yay! we have been kind of doomsday let's get into I some know, good Climate change and COVID kind of do that to conversations. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So, um, yeah. So one big thing overall that's um, coming into light is that some of the climate policies that have been put into place are working. 
Um, so that kind of uh, worst case scenarios of, of four degrees increase, for instance, is not looking like that's going to be our future. That's huge, right? That's that, huge. That's huge, yeah. right? It means that policy um, is really critical here, as my research showed in aquaculture as well, of, um, that, that policy dimensions and interventions um, work. Mm. And, and it's just a matter of, are people willing to adopt those things um, for those changes? But but that has been uh, a really important finding of that um, kind of long-term worst case scenario is not not proving or playing likely going to play out given the trajectory of those policies and how energy is shifting um, in terms of, of that trajectory as well. And I had some colleagues recently publish a paper on really exploring and disentangling um, why it is we're seeing that, you know, we're, while it is going to warm um, and we're very much on the trajectory of kind of that two to three mark uh, mm. degree Celsius. So that is still happening and that still does result in dramatic impact. It isn't that four to five degree um, in previous decades of study that, that we had uh, modeling out and that, yes, we, we can intervene, right? It is not too late. There isn't this, you know, impending tipping point in, yeah. in five or 10 years where we can't, do something about it. We absolutely can, and that that is emboldening. That is that's exciting. Um, and I think the thing that can easily get lost in the doom and gloom of just feeling overwhelmed and not being able to do something, mm -hmm. but no, we can, and we actually have the tools to do it. That's the other cool part of you know we we know that certain policies that are put into place for uh, better regulations over carbon emissions, whether at the certainly at the industrial level of companies yeah. doing that, uh, but also at kind of um, kind of local scales and applications of say home development, right? Of uh, inducing or uh, putting in actions to reduce um, household gas use uh, and, and electrifying things and solar panel mm -hmm. uh, incentives and those types of things work and have been working, which is really exciting. So that's all very positive um, and, you know, things like the Build Back Better plan uh, that the yep. Biden administration has um, well, tried to put forward um, had so much in it in terms of climate. And it looks like, you know, there is still potential there to, to kind of weave some of those things in. Yeah, sneak um, some of that stuff in. Yeah, yeah, which is really, really great. Um, so we see that, that that's playing out um, in the global stage of, of those initiatives have have really positive repercussions. And then yeah. if we're looking at the seafood side, uh, there's tons of excitement over the, the prospects of diversifying the kind of portfolio of the types of things that are grown. So um, seaweeds are having their day in the light, yep. you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> People are so excited about seaweeds. Um, and while they will not save us from climate change, and I can't emphasize that enough, as much <laughs> as I love uh, seaweeds, they are not the silver bullet to what ails us for climate change. That is, we have to reduce carbon emissions. That's that's yeah. that's the end point. Yeah, there's no real, uh, you know, one thing that can fix it anyway. So yeah, no, th this is going to mm. be. There's no silver bullet. It's more of a casting, right? It's more of a shotgun yeah, approach. It, exactly. You need a little bit of everything. Um, some things will have bigger impact than than others, but for seaweeds um, and kind of lower. Uh, unfed species like like oysters and other bivalves right yeah. that, yep exactly that those those types of taxonomic groups are showing uh real promise for improving water quality 
seaweeds uh, buffering the effects, um, at least locally, at uh, smaller scales of um, hypoxia, so low oxygen conditions, as well mm -hmm. as ocean acidification. So kind of planning those types of things for um, integrating into a system could be really beneficial for buffering some of the effects coming down the pipeline that, you know, again, the ball's already kind of rolling, but there are things that and interventions that could be put into place um, that could help mitigate some of those impacts moving forward uh, directly in the aquaculture industry um, and working alongside fisheries as well. So that there are these like nature-based solutions that that are that are there that are getting people really excited. That yeah. is always really cool to see. It's it's always nice when you realize that something is not as bad as you thought it was. <laughs> That's you know. I wanted to talk about fisheries. Uh, I don't. I know a lot of your work is revolving around aquaculture, but um, yes. what are some of the biggest challenges that the fisheries are facing right now? Is that mostly like moving stocks because of temperature changes, things like that, regulations that they have to face because now they're they're in different areas? What What do you think are are what what is affecting the wild caught fisheries? Some of the big biggest things that we're noticing, um, certainly, and I'll focus on the United States because those are the ones that I know well, mm -hmm. um, really well. But and I'll try to try to branch out a little bit when talk about forage fish. But some of the things that we're finding um, that are really hitting the industry hard um, are things like harmful algal blooms. That's a big one. So um, that had uh, took a huge um, chunk out of the timing for, say, the Dungeness crab fishery here on the West Coast. One of the most lucrative and important fisheries that we have has been just repeatedly hit <laughs> by by harmful algal blooms that causes the the fishery to have to shut down early or delay that season or eliminate it completely. Um, and Oof. and it. And because of this, as one capacity, there's another dimension here, uh, but one uh, part of this actually led to that industry suing um, oil producers for the first time in history oh, be wow. because of that interaction, because they linked climate change to their their losses, right, to um, to their well-being, to their livelihoods. Um, and, you know, we've that's the first time we've seen that happen. Yeah, um, I didn't and, hear about that. That's fascinating. Mm, yeah. And it, it really kind of, this is something that um, I see time and time again is either fishers or aquatic farmers, like these, these people are on the front lines. Um, I've had almost no interaction where any farmer or fisher has been, has said to me, well, climate change doesn't matter. or Climate change isn't real. That has never come out of the mouth of a fisher <laughs> or farmer that I've interacted with. Doesn't mean that it's not the case, but these people are like, oh no, no. Yeah. We see this all the time. Like, Ocean acidification yeah. ripped through, killed all our larvae, uh, the giant heat wave wiped out our mussels, right? So these things are just, they're, they're right there seeing it firsthand um, as, as these things become more common. Um, but uh, so in addition to kind of delaying seasons or completely eliminating it, it's also changing the dynamics, um, as you were saying, kind of species on the move. Um, mm -hmm. moving different locations, either the, the targeted species themselves, or um, in the case of both the East Coast and the West Coast of the United States, um, the kind of phytoplankton, zooplankton the foods, are moving. The food species. Yeah. The food, the source, the bottom of uh, the food chain is moving. Mm -hmm. And the big things that all of those things, whales, are also moving. Um, moving away from um, those areas into areas that are heavily fished. Right, And now you have this 
ecosystem conflict that is starting to emerge as well. So we have these layers of climate change impacts kind of unraveling, where even if it doesn't um, dramatically directly affect the organism at hand, um, you have these other effects playing out that will. Um, and and so we're seeing that that play out as well. And and then layered on top of that is the governance dimension of you know, fish, fish and invertebrates don't care. The ones that move and, and follow the prey or follow the temperature gradient, um, they don't they don't know our boundaries. They don't know our geographic or governance boundaries. And so you have uh, lobsters um, and other species moving into other states, moving into other countries, uh, which create a lot of challenges and and quote unquote fish wars uh, that are yeah. playing out in in current state of things. And there's tons of research of of fishery scientists who are kind of studying, you know, how best do we do we move forward on this? Um, how can you prepare and and our anticipation? Because not all stocks are moving. But mm-hmm. enough are <laughs> that it's it's creating creating issues, especially when they're the really high value ones like crabs right. and, and lobsters. And like those, the people who fish for those, that that's what they do. It's not like they're going out and catching whatever they can catch, right? Like that's right. You're targeting this one species, and that species happens to now be in ca- Canadian waters. You don't <laughs> where you don't have the right to you fish do? in. Right. What do you do? You that's know, right. and that, yeah. What do you do? And and, yeah. and but you but and it's also like, well, that's not my fault. I, you know, I now all mm-hmm. of a sudden. It's either fish illegally or or die until someone or starve, you know, or so, switch right like that. Right. That's a really cool dimension that a lot of my work is starting to to intersect with of the interactions between fisheries and aquaculture. Mm-hmm. Some of my postdocs and um, graduate students they're looking at these blue transitions of what happens when say fisheries decline either through say overfishing or changes in where fish are, mm-hmm. whatever that mechanism is um, to see that decline. Do we see the emergence of aquaculture on the other side? Um, as yeah. We've well? talked about that. Uh, yeah. We, we had an episode talking about scallops and, and um, we were talking about how lobstermen on, on, and this is more kind of on the off season, right? Like not mm-hmm. not so much because they're forced to, but they're right. they're starting to farm scallops on their off season so they can have mm. income coming in all year. And like that's all year like, round, yeah. That's that's an option. Okay, well, I can't can't fish for this species anymore, but mm-hmm. while I'm here, I can get you know a, a couple acres, uh, lease a couple acres, and farm some shellfish because yeah, that that's an option here, and that's a you know there's a, a legitimate economy for it and so yeah that's really interesting too and that actually leads right into kind of the last thing i was going to ask you because actually this time got away from us we've been doing this for almost an hour already yeah um what can our listeners what are some actions that our listeners could take uh you know you know who who our audience is it's the seafood Mm -hmm. it's the people in the seafood industry from all the way from executive at distributors all the way down to the people who are 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 producing and you know making feed and all this different every Mm -hmm. asset every facet of the seafood industry what can those people do to either adapt or help the situation yeah well there's there's a multitude but i'll go back to some of the research that was um that we talked about in the beginning, which is that governance dimension, the policy dimension. Um, yeah. And I tell this across the board to students or anybody in between, uh, farmers, you name it. Like the number one thing, especially when it comes to climate change and adaptations and finding solutions, is to vote. 
I mean, mm-hmm. it, you could you could change your diet. You could, uh, you know, um, buy techn- more advanced technology to do precision mm-hmm. farming, right? Which would be really helpful for an individual, but as a collective, right? The collective action when it comes to climate change and seafood or climate change and just society in general, voting is 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 the absolute most powerful thing you can do <laughs> to really help. Um, collectively push that that needle uh, in a direction to have more infrastructure that collectively benefits everybody. Um, and certainly, like I said, that that's not the end all technology and uh, selective breeding practices and siding and all of that. Yeah. Those other individual and very um, seafood specific approaches, very useful. Uh, but if the infrastructure, the policy and governance is missing, it's exceedingly hard to do that. Um, mm-hmm. Not impossible, but it but it makes it much more challenging uh, to try to, to get that and and get the the returns on investment, right? Of you know, oh, wouldn't it be great that um, there would be incentives or tax breaks if mm-hmm. uh, the growing seaweed allowed you to have those, right? Yeah, that's that's a policy thing that um, would need to happen, and people are really excited about. Uh, growing those things and and advancing that dimension, uh, but the policy hasn't caught up to that innovation yet. Um, right. And so that that would be my that would be my big one. That's fantastic, and you know that's similar to the advice that you gave last time you were on too. It is. It's like I'm consistent sometimes. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice <laughs> to know I that you say. you know. Um, <laughs> this has been fantastic. Thank you so much again for coming on. Is there anything else that you want to get out there? I I want to say. I really appreciate the fact that every time I ask you a question or ask you to share your knowledge, you start off by saying, I'm going to reference the research hmm. and and you're relying on the, the actual science that's been done and has been published. And, and I really appreciate that. It's a breath of fresh air when we're surrounded oh, by all of the, this, this, the doom scrolling with people who think that they yeah. know what's going on, but actually don't know the research and the science. And it's, hmm. it's nice that that is where you always come from. And I appreciate that. But before we go, what any other message that you want to get out there before we close things out here? And I'm sure we'll have you on again because, you know, you're, like I said, returning champion. <laughs> so this is not your last opportunity to speak, but uh, I want to make sure I give you the floor to get get out anything you want to get out. Yeah, I, I guess I would just reiterate, um, it's easy to feel overwhelmed by the advanced and eminent things that are coming down the pipeline uh, mm. with climate change. But really kind of the the hope is not lost um, on this and we we do have the tools and we do have the knowledge um, in terms of how how do we get through this in a way um, that benefits the local farmer um, or the fisher upwards of you know the greater coastal communities and beyond that there there is not hope is not lost and yeah. and I can't say that enough because it's so easy to to just get stuck in it um, as we <laughs> as we weaved through that depressing uh, diatribe in the beginning of our conversation, um, yeah. it, I mean that's a prime example of it's really easy to get stuck in the negative. Mm-hmm. But there there is hope, and and one of the things for the reports that are coming out for IPCC and for the National Climate Assessment is a greater emphasis on adaptation and solutions. Um, that you know oh, we've shown that impacts are coming, but you know so are the solutions too, and and hope is not lost. That's perfect. Thank you. And then lastly, if anyone wants to get in contact with you, would you uh, like that? And <laughs> what's the best way for them to do that? <laughs> uh, well, I get about 50 emails a day. So if I do not respond, it's don't take it as a personal attack. But yes, mm-hmm. um, 
obviously my, my email is available. Um, if it's, if it's, you know, aquaculture or seafood related or related to my research, I'm happy to answer those questions. Awesome. Well, that makes me feel a lot better at about how quickly you answered my email when I reached oh, out to you. you. So thank you for that. <laughs> You're very welcome. Awesome. So again, uh, Holly Froelich, really appreciate you joining us and we'll talk to you again real soon. Sounds good. Thank you, Sean. Folks, that was my conversation with Holly Froelich all about what is going on with global climate change in 2022. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something and I hope you will reach out to us by using that contact form at globalseafood.org slash podcast. Remember to subscribe to Aquademia wherever you listen and leave us a rating and review on whichever platform you use. We would love to hear from you. And with that, thank you so much for listening and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.